Grace and peace to you, beloved community from Jesus, who calls you to be the church, his body in the world. Amen. When a person discerns a call to be a pastor and goes to seminary, one of the things that they learn, at least in theory, is how to write and give sermons. Now, I know that you all are here today because you were just hoping that someone would give you a dissertation on the details of homiletical theory and sermon giving, and it is your lucky day because I am going to give that to you. There are a lot of different schools of thought out there about the best way to organize a sermon to make it clear and easy to understand, different strategies to use to get from any given passage of scripture to a sermon, a message, something to offer. And yes, you are welcome to provide any feedback uh, on whether you think our strategies are working, or if it seems like we are employing any strategy at all, please feel free to say so. One of the strategies that I learned and sometimes use, and that I think is helpful for all of us when we are reading the Bible, whether or not we're going to be preaching on it, is to ask, what is the challenge in the passage in front of us, and what is the promise? The challenge and the promise. What's the hard thing that we encounter in these verses? What brokenness in humanity or in the world do the verses describe? Or what call to action do they present? What's the challenge? And also, what's the promise? What piece of good news? The definition of gospel is good news. What good news does this passage have that will reassure and sustain us? And what's particularly interesting to me about that approach to reading the Bible is that sometimes the challenge and the promise are the same thing. And I think that might be the case today when Jesus says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. I am with you, Jesus tells his followers. Whenever you get together, no matter how big or small the crowd, I'll be there too. At first blush, this might sound like good news, a bit of reassurance, a promise from Jesus. It probably sounded that way, especially to Jesus' first followers, to the first groups of people who heard it. He spoke these words to his disciples while he was still with them, still alive and leading them around, teaching and preaching and performing miracles. But as we know, that didn't last. And while Jesus' arrest, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension to heaven, while that turned out to be the very best news for us, it also meant that Jesus wasn't physically present with his friends and followers anymore. It meant they had to figure out what to do next without him by their side. And it meant that they pretty quickly came into conflict with their neighbors their friends, their communities, sometimes with their own families, about what they believed and how they were going to live. And that conflict did not end with that first group of followers. When the Gospel of Matthew, where our passage for today is from, when it was written down, it was something like 50 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. 
and followers of Jesus had lived through some unbelievably difficult times. They were still at odds with other groups of faithful people who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And their conflicts could result in public arguments, in arrest, in banishment, even in persecution and death. When Jesus' followers gathered together, they needed the reminder that Jesus had not abandoned them, but was still with them, whatever they were facing. Those conflicts that the early church endured, they were not just between the church and groups outside of the church. There was plenty of conflict within the church too, between followers of Jesus. And this is where two or three gathered in my name, I am there among them, can start to sound different. Less like a reassuring promise and more like a challenging reality, more like this. Jesus, the hall monitor. Jesus, the annoying sibling who's always trying to get you into trouble. Jesus, who is always watching. When Jesus reminds his followers that he is always with them, he's reminding them that he is always with them. He's always there. I can still hear you, he is saying. If someone in the church, which is the body of Christ, sins against someone else, if somebody wrongs someone, if there's a disagreement or a falling out, that problem is not just between those two people. Jesus is there too. How they speak to each other or about each other, how they go about trying to fix things or address the situation, Jesus is right there for all of it. Unless his followers start thinking that their problems are just between them and Jesus, Jesus reminds them that how they handle their conflict impacts the whole community. The individual relationships between people are the ties on which the community is built. How they treat each other when they're one-on-one -on -one or in small groups has implications for the shape of the whole community too. With this in mind, Jesus lays out a process for dealing with conflict among his followers. When someone is wronged, they go directly to the person who has wronged them for a private conversation. If that doesn't result in a resolution, the wronged party brings along one or two other members of the community to act as witnesses. And if that doesn't work, then the whole community gets involved. For each of these steps, the goal is never to win an argument. It's never to shame someone or score some popularity points or make sure that somebody gets what's coming to them. The hoped-for outcome is always reconciliation, repaired relationships, a community that is whole and healthy because its members have whole and healthy relationships with each other. And it's crucial to pause here and notice that Jesus does not insist on relationships maintained at all costs. The hoped-for outcome is reconciliation, yes, but Jesus makes it clear that that's possible only when the wrong that has been committed stops happening. It is not your Christian duty to maintain a relationship or to stay in a community whatever the cost, whatever the suffering might be. 
Your relationships, your communities, they should be places where you are safe and loved and able to experience the, in, the abundance that God intends for all people. And if that isn't the case for you, please know you can always talk to any member of staff here at FLC. Jesus teaches his followers that the way to handle conflict is to be direct and honest, to work towards understanding and reunion, to bear in mind that how they treat each other impacts the whole community, and to speak and to act in full awareness that Jesus is there with them. These instructions, almost 2,000 years old, have remarkable relevance for us today. It doesn't take more than a glance at the fractured state of our society to wonder if we too might benefit from acknowledging that how we treat each other individually has implications for what our community, our nation, our world, what they look like. Just a few minutes spent looking up the statistics on bullying and loneliness would suggest that it is long past time that we start taking Jesus' instructions for healthy communities more seriously. Imagine how different things might be if when we had a problem with someone, we went directly and privately to them to talk about it, rather than sounding off on social media or complaining about them to someone else or just cutting them off. How would our lives, both in person and online, be different if we more often behaved as though Jesus were right beside us? What would change if we asked ourselves more frequently, would I say this, or laugh at this, or mutter this, or post this, or retweet this, or snap this? Would I do that if Jesus could see and hear me? My younger brother lives in a neighborhood in South Minneapolis, in a house that he's been renting for more than a year. Dan is committed to being a good steward of the environment and to doing what he can to fight climate change. One of the ways that he's doing that is by cultivating the little yard and garden outside his house to be a pollinator-friendly place. He avoids pesticides, He's chosen some plants that are especially good for pollinating insects, and he's allowed the grass to grow a little longer than your average suburban lawn. This is not his lawn, but one like it. Dan's been a reliable tenant, and he's on good terms with his landlord, who is, of course, aware of how Dan is tending both the house and the yard. None of this yet sounds like the source of much conflict, but there are people involved in this story, and people can be very people-y, and that is what happened. A few weeks ago, Dan got word from his landlord that a neighbor had complained about Dan's lawn, specifically about the length of the grass. And at this point in the story, it is helpful to know that Dan is a lawyer. Mm-hmm. He has a law degree. He's an attorney. He is very, very good at arguing. Trust me, I have a lifetime of experience in that department. He is very good at arguing. Dan's law background also means that he is tuned into the finer points of local ordinances and city rules and regulations. 
So when Dan heard that a neighbor had called his landlord to complain about him, Dan's first instinct was a fight. Armed with facts, knowing that the law was on his side, confident in his ability to win an argument, Dan was ready to walk up the street, knock on the door, and have it out with somebody. And then he stopped. He considered his options and the possible outcomes of those options. Sure, he could argue, and he would win, and he would be right. But where would that leave him or his neighbor? What would it do for the cause that he cares so much about, being an advocate for the environment? So instead, Dan tried something a little different. He did walk up the street and knock on the door one afternoon. When the door opened, Dan calmly said, my name is Dan. I live up the street in the house with the long grass. My landlord said that you had a complaint about it, and I was wondering if you could tell me more about your concerns. And then those two neighbors, previously strangers with a bad feeling between them, proceeded to visit for a half an hour, sharing their perspectives and finding some common ground. I don't want to pretend that any of this is easy for any of us. It's not. I know it wasn't easy for Dan. He said the first few minutes of their interaction were a little strained and awkward. I will tell you that all of my inner Midwesterner came out just listening to him tell me the story, and I felt a little strained and awkward. Jesus isn't pretending that it's easy either. His instructions are straightforward enough. They sound simple, but they are not easy. And Jesus knows it. And so he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. These words that are both challenge and promise. Yes, Jesus being with us challenges us. It challenges us to change our behavior, to live differently, to put in extra effort in how we care for each other, especially how we care for those with whom we disagree. Ultimately, though, Jesus did not come into the world to be our hall monitor. He came to be our friend and savior. Jesus lived and died and rose again to prove that nothing we can do or not do could ever keep God's love from us. He came so that we would know forgiveness and grace for our mistakes and mercies that are new every morning. Jesus came to love us, to call us into community with other beloved ones, and to send us out to share his love with our words and our actions. He is with us, so let's live like it. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Farmington Lutheran Church, its ministries, and how to connect to this part of the body of Christ by going to farmingtonlutheran.com. Peace be with you.